This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McRae. I'm back from a trip to Indiana and Technology Days, a premier field day with a lot for farmers to see, do, and learn. One of the most popular tour stops was Jim Love and his variety of drones. I call the segment Drones for Dummies because Jim takes his expert knowledge to aid those of us that need a lot of help. Plus, we discuss organics versus conventional crops and explore the opportunities and challenges based on the latest field research. It's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, brought to you by David Bio. One of the biggest concerns for farmers are rising input prices, and at the top of many lists is nitrogen. Even with those higher prices, you still need nitrogen, and in today's world, I'm always looking for ways to improve bushels while still using more sustainable farming methods. That led me to Pivot Bioproven 40, which can produce up to the equivalent of 40 pounds of synthetic nitrogen. Our field demonstrations so an opportunity for a better ROI and a reduction of synthetic nitrogen. Turn to better nitrogen with Pivot Bio. I hope you'll learn more. Just go to pivotbio.com. This week we have two interviews, and we begin with Jim Love, light robotics manager at Bex Hybrids. As he will share, he didn't begin life as a tech expert. In fact, he'd probably tell you he's just a regular guy who spent a lot of time around some pretty cool machines. But that's the point of this interview. Are some of those flying machines something every farm should have, or do you really need one at all? What could you do with it? Would it pass the test of a necessary item on your farm that could pencil out on paper? I think you'll learn a lot, just as I did. Tell me about how you uh, got into this job because it didn't exist, is that right? Yeah, so this job didn't exist. We had flown model airplanes as kids and uh, we were also very excited about imagery in the 90s, but imagery was very challenging to get back then. So I was at a farm show one day and I saw this $25,000 foam airplane that had a camera built into it that would actually gain the imagery on demand. And so we got involved with that and uh, that, that was in 2014. And by 2015, we put this program together and we've started testing since then we test and prove and either approve or disapprove of equipment and try to make sure that our growers and farmers when they go to make these purchases buy the stuff that makes sense for them because there's a lot of opportunity in this industry to spend a lot of foolish money that doesn't do anybody a bit of good and or actually is so complicated that they've got ten or twenty thousand dollars spent on something they're either afraid to use or they won't use because they don't want to tear it up. And so we try to make sure that people don't make those mistakes. So walk me through that, because I think a lot of us as farmers are in the same boat. It looks neat, but yeah. what do I do after that? So can you give me a good uh, case for, yeah, this is something you should do, and how would I use it? Sure, so that's the thing we're always trying to figure out is, okay, we've got this data, but is it actionable? Is it going to put any money in anybody's pocket? A prime example of that right now is LIDAR. Everybody's jacked up about LIDAR, and there's a plane out here that's in the grass that'll carry a LIDAR right now. We would love to have one, but we don't know what to do with the data because we don't know how it's actionable for a farmer. So with our, some of these smaller drones, what we can do is, without changing the cameras now, we can actually get the data that we want out of the bands of the camera that are there through a computer wizardry that's well beyond my knowledge and what I know how to do. But I know how to fly the drones, 
we get the, the raw image, the computer program can extrapolate the data that we want out of the different bands, and then we can make decisions based on nitrogen or nutrient deficiencies or moisture deficiencies. If we have people that are irrigating, they can look at these fields and go, okay, this we got even application here, but perhaps we didn't somewhere else. So those are the kind of things that we can identify now. People just have to realize that when you look at an NDVI or a crop health image, you hear them called a lot of things, that you're only actually looking at a snapshot in time of that field compared to other crop in the same field. So you might have a red spot in the field, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. It's just not as good as the best spot in the field. So like on our home farm, we have clay knobs. Well, they'll show up red in a population scan, but that's okay because they don't need the same population that the low ground does. So the, what this product does and what the drones do for us is it takes our agronomists and people with knowledge and, and farmers it, it scatters them out over a much broader area and they can gather data quicker and they know where to go look. They know where the problems are. They can identify, okay, we've got tillage tracks from this year, we shouldn't do that again. Or we've got nitrogen problems, we've got a rig that's turning off too early. At home, we had, a, we had some end knives on a, a, a toolbar that weren't putting on the right amount of in, and so we could see that in the images quite clearly and we're gonna make those changes before next year. It wasn't bad enough that we went out and did any uh, uh, repair or rescue on it, but we're going to make changes before next year. So do you think the biggest thing right now is just being able to see things, the imaging? Is that where where it's at right now? Because we think about spraying, but is imaging where the first thing? Well, so imaging is the thing that's the easiest to do, and legislatively it's the easiest to do because you can go get a 107 license very easily and be com in full compliance. The spray drones right now, the uh, the legislative portion of that is a little challenging. So that's kind of holding back the spray drones, but the technology-wise is very good. And this is the classic time of the year as we stand here at the end of August. Everybody is all jacked up about the fact that they've either waited on a plane that didn't show up to put fungicide on, or they've paid their bill. And so spray drones are the hottest topic in late August every year because everybody has, has got aerial application of fungicides on their mind. <laughs> so are we there yet? Are, can I mean, obviously you can do it, but is it practical at this point? So what we're seeing is we're seeing that the guys that are getting their ducks in order and getting their 137 and some of the other um, hurdles uh, accomplished, we're seeing them run them in groups of two. And as we go across the Corn Belt, we're seeing a fair amount of these drones that are actually out there. And guys are getting pretty efficient with them. We're also seeing that the manufacturers in response to that are saying, okay, if you're having good luck with a four gallon drone, let's get you an eight gallon drone. Or as we see some of the protos that are coming out, we've got guys that are talking some drones in the teens. And so if you can have a drone that carries, say, 15 gallons or even 8 gallons, and you're doing that cycle every 8 to, well, it'd be more like probably 12 to 14 minutes. And so you're pulling that cycle off and you've got two of them in the air. Now we're getting something done. And uh, I always tell guys, if you can live with 100 acres per day, then a, a spray drone's for you. Where it really fits is as we get guys that have uh, fields that are very hard to spray with either a ground machine or an airplane, these drones are just the ticket. So small acreage. Um, also, as we go up and into the, the uh, areas where guys grow pumpkins and any kind of vining crops, they're the bomb for vining crops because now you don't crush the crop and you don't crush the vines. So there's definitely a lot of application for them. And I think that as we get scaled up, you're going to see that these things are going to get bigger and bigger. I think you're probably going to see some rules modifications so that the spray drones um, operate in a different parameters than do the spray planes. Because when you really think about it, the spray drone that's behind me sitting in the grass, it operates at a lower altitude than a grain cart with its auger up. Because you really never want to get more than a few feet above the crop. 
And so even in a standing crop of corn, you know, you're probably looking at a 15 foot ceiling. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So how far away do you think we are then from drones perhaps replacing the need for ground rigs, the need for airplanes and, and big fixed wing ag- aircraft? I mean, we're heading that direction, right? But how far away would we be? Great question. So I think that as if the legislative piece of the puzzle gets in place, I think you could see as in as little as five years the majority of this fungicide going on with spray drones. Just because the technology's there, the acceptance level's there, and we know that farmers are fiercely independent. And when you think about farmers, one of the things that they love to do is buy things and operate and be independent. And so this gives them that independence in the aerial space that they've never really had before because it's, you know, running a a big spray plane is is quite an undertaking. Whereas if they can do it with spray drones, then we're probably going to see people migrate towards that. Do you think it'll be mostly fungicides or will we eventually get to where we can do herbicides? I mean, we think about having to run a lot more gallons for those. So, So, uh, one of the things that I love about my job with VEX is I get to travel uh, an entire United States and see how people farm. And so the, in this geography that we're standing in today, so the I states, basically you're probably going to see fungicide and insecticides. But as you go south, you'll find that those guys are much more comfortable spraying herbicide out of airplanes down there already. So I think that what we'll see is we'll see that, that follow the geography. So in places where they're already spraying herbicides out with aircraft, um, we'll see more of that down there. Here in the I states, you know, you don't see a lot of herbicide sprayed out of aircraft, even where it is uh, where there's label for it. So I think it'll probably be by geography. All right. Talk about what's behind us then. Uh, what do we got here? So today what we've got is we've got the Helio spray drone. That's the 4.3 gallon version. It'll spray 4.3 gallons in about a 12 minute cycle. So every 12 minutes it's being ready to be reloaded, put a fresh battery in it and fill it up. Then in the foreground what we've got is we've got a Quantum Trinity 90. The cool thing about this plane is this is a data gathering plane but it, its claim to fame is it has 90 minutes of flight time. So in 90 minutes, it could suck up three to 500 acres worth of data on a single battery. It also has a payload bay in it about the size of a loaf of bread. So it has all kinds of payload opportunities that you can put in it that otherwise we've not had the options with with our, our rotaries because the rotaries, you know, deadlift is, is a problem and battery time has always been a problem. So the, this is a German-made drone that we just have acquired. Um, it's very interesting. We've been Typically, we've been using Asian-based stuff, and it's amazing how the European drones, the level of sophistication in them is really cool. And this drone is a German-made product, and it exemplifies everything that you've ever, all the stereotypes about German engineering. Talk about if I'm a farmer who has never had a drone before, and I wonder, okay, should I get one? Well, what should I look at, and how am I going to use it? So I always talk people down from high-priced drones, because I think that what happens is too often people buy real expensive drones, and then they're afraid to use them. So you can get in a drone for about 1500 bucks, and within a few minutes you can learn to fly them. Because when you think about the way the drones work now, they actually fly themselves. And all you're doing with the controller on a drone is telling it what direction to move. And then a very sophisticated computer decides what to do with those four motors to make the drone do what you ask it to do. So we have guys out here today that are helping and passing controllers around and letting our customers fly. And those guys are seasoned veterans of about a day and a half. They had, they had never flown a drone before in their life, and I showed them how to fly a drone in about 10 minutes the other day. And after about one battery of flying a drone, it becomes pretty obvious how to do it. So I think guys just need to, 
to jump in. We have drones that cost as little as $600 that are just a flying camera. And we sell a bunch of those because we have schools and people who are on the fence about getting one. And I say, get this $600 drone. And at the end of the day, if you want a better one, give that to your kids, or your grandkids, and go buy a $1,500 one. But at least that way, you don't have something sitting on your shelf that you're not using. What would be the difference between $600 and $1,500 as far as what it's going to do for me? Well, the nav system, although they appear to be exactly the same from the outside and from an operator's standpoint, but the, the more expensive one can fly on some of the third-party software. So if you're trying to build maps and things, you could, the more expensive one will fly on those, whereas the $600 one is just a flying camera. We used to be big snobs and thought, oh, if it won't fly a pattern, it's not worth doing. But the reality of it is lots and lots of times, nothing more than just a good picture from the sky tells the guy what he needs to see. And so we've changed our tune on that and, and become not quite so uh, snobbish when it comes to, to our, our drones. What we really want to do is make sure that, that people um, get a drone that fits their needs and don't end up spending a whole bunch of money along the way so that they feel like they have something that they can go out and use. Well, and if I spent that money, will I end up crashing it in one day? Or are we good enough now that, hey, I shouldn't have to worry about that a whole lot? So I always tell our guys that the light, the crashing, the only thing that crashes drones is when you interface with something that's connected to the earth. And as long as you don't get into a building or a tree, trees are the number one thing that crashes drones. They're the undisputed champion of the sky. And every time one of our guys gets into a tree, they crash a drone. So trees are first, guide wires and power lines are probably a close second, and their own home while they're doing something silly is the third. <laughs> so as long as you get out in a nice open area and fly the drone and you can get your feet wet and stay away from hard objects, they're nearly, I have never had any school kids crash, and I take these to schools all the time, and I pass the controllers around, and I have all kinds of kids fly, but I always do it in a nice open area. If you start an open area, they're hard to crash. In the second half of this week's show, I talked with Dave Ross, brand manager of Great Harvest Organics. I always enjoy my conversation with Dave because he helps you think about new ideas no matter how you may farm. We discussed some of the opportunities and challenges facing farmers in the field right now. Dave, we're at Technology Days, and certainly you cover a lot of things under this heading of regenerative agriculture, which can encompass a lot of things. So I'm going to give you kind of free reign here. What is it that you're talking about this year so much about regenerative ag underneath that heading that is exciting to you? Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting question, and you're right about regenerative ag. There's a, it's a broad subject. Um, what we're going to focus on in the organic or great harvest organics uh, area this year is ways to reduce tillage in organic corn production. And with that, we're trying to incorporate um, uh, cover crops that can help us uh, suppress weeds, grow nitrogen, and limit its competition with what the, the crop we want, of course, which is corn. And, uh, you know, we've to this stage, we've had... Um, We've had limited success, to be honest, with uh, with regard to no-till corn, pure no-till organic, certified organic corn. But the attempt continues. And this year we have Erin Silva from University of Wisconsin who's coming and talking about some methods that she's had success with. Talk about the work of Erin Silva at University of Wisconsin. What things are seeming to work well to overcome some of the problems of using cover crops with corn? Then She really... Uh, help drive the success that we've had really in soybeans. And what we've done there is used rolled and crimped cereal rye. 
And um, uh, how would I describe that? She would describe that as, as a living mulch. And where we roll and crimp that down and use that as a method to uh, suppress weeds. Fully dependent on that on the organic side. But I think on the conventional side of agriculture, many have had good success with rolled and crimped cereal rye as well as ways to reduce uh, herbicide use and save costs. Also to have something green and living in that soil at all times to help improve biology. You mentioned the organic and the conventional. I'd like to talk a little bit about both. First of all, talk about the organic, because when we last talked, you talked about the great growth in that market. I'm betting you're going to say it continues to grow and there's great opportunities on the organic side. Is that right? Yeah, and I'll I'll make a, a focus on the real growth in terms of value this last year has been the soybean market. Uh, organic Certified organic bushel of soybeans uh, will sell today for somewhere between 35 and $40. That's a high-value crop. Uh, it's a great opportunity for uh, an organic farmer uh, to uh, overcome the challenges of, of growing certified organic soybeans and, and to be compensated for it. So corn has, or corn has led it in the past, but this past year, soybeans has really been the, the driver. And it's because of a su- supply issue currently, meal primarily. So if farmers are thinking about that, Kind of give them an idea of the learning curve on this, because certainly $30 or more per bushel of soybeans sounds great, but I'm sure that comes with a little work and a little knowledge. Yeah, that's interesting you say that. And and, and this is a comment I make to, to many farmers who come to Becknology Days about, hey, so what about the organic thing? And should I get into this? And and, and I will say to them that the prices are typically 2.3 times the CME. And, and with that, they're 2.3 times riskier. So we're in the risk business, right? And we understand that. And and when you go to a, a market like Certified Organic, the risks are greater to get in. And also the barriers of entry, to go back to your question, uh, are, are there as well. There's a what, it, what would be considered a 36-month uh, period of time that would be called the transition, to transition from uh, pesticide use to Certified Organic. The theory behind that is that the farmer would learn how to go through that system, how to use that system. Uh, the other side of it, I think, is uh, a, a bit of a, a barrier so that um, there's not a rush to the market. One should be committed. And, and, and I think that's where the 36 months sh- certainly test your commitment. Yeah. If a person is thinking about that, what do they do about marketing? Do we have enough markets around the Midwest or the country now to be able to actively sell and market these type of crops organically? It's interesting you say that because the, the ticklish part about uh, certified organic is a bit of a Wild West scenario. And, and what I mean by that is uh, you, you also need to, be a, you need to be a great manager and grower. But most importantly, when you plant the crop, you've got to be ready to start marketing it. And I mean that early and thinking ahead. There are many markets available today. There's great demand, but I, I think you've, you've got to go out and find those markets as you plant. Look for contracts, which I, I deem as warm blankets. It's nice to have 40% of your crop maybe contracted if you could, maybe as much as 50, depending on, on, on who you're contracting with. Uh, and the other side of that is I, I think you need to go to a list and call and say, this is what I have and, and talk about your availability. We have lists available for farmers who are interested in that, of buyers of organic crops, corn, soybeans, and wheat. 
let's jump over then to the conventional side because what you're learning from regenerative ag can be applied in conventional means and probably it's going to continue to become more important as we think about all things related to conservation and, and farming more sustainably. So what is it we're learning now that we can transfer over into conventional crops? Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I, I think the regenerative movement is driven by the consumer more than anything. And the idea there, and, and will become potentially a federally driven thing. I don't know that at this stage and that speculation. But if that should be the case, I think what we're learning now is certainly having something living in the soil. And this has been, uh, this has been promoted by cover crop folks for many years. It, living biology in the soil is always good. And year-round is even better. There's costs associated with that. Uh, but I think also the proof has to be that there are returns as well. And I, I think that's the thing. Those are the kind of things we're trying to discover through PFR, practical farm research. And uh, I, I think if those things prove out, certainly for the conventional farmer, it, it will be more lucrative. For the organic farmer, it's, just, it, it's, a, it's a way for weed suppression and part of, a, part of our herbicide program essentially. Where we sit right now here in central Indiana, you've got some long, flat, fertile fields. So is it hard to convince some farmers, especially in these uh, places, to want to use cover crops and so forth? Because I suspect that hasn't been used a lot. Is it hard to, to, to overcome some of those barriers or challenges? I think, I think yes. I, I do think it's uh, because it's an expense, an additional expense. But I, I think as... Um, as commodity uh, prices have come up, farmers are looking at this as another option and say, okay, well, the commodity price is there. Maybe this is a chance for me to add more organic matter to my soil and improve its overall value long term. So uh, that, that's kind of what I see with that. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the expense, and certainly there is expense and time to do some of those practices. Are you finding, though, that it is, in a sense, paying them back? Is it doing more than just the, the time and the effort uh, the, to put in cover crops and use some of these methods? I mean, I'll take the organic example as a good one. So in a, in a typical conventional soybean scenario, I, I, would, I would consider $70 on, on pre-emergent herbicide and post-emergent application a common thing. On the organic side, three bushel of, um, of uh, cereal rye, and a little bit of time involved is maybe a similar cost. So with that, I, I think there is a, a, an even trade-off. I think on the conventional side, with with costs rising in in certainly in, in herbicide, that 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 could even out as well. Yeah. You mentioned the PFR research. Are there any things that you've done over the last year that kind of feed into that that you're learning and sharing with folks at Technology Days? Sure. Uh, so uh, rolled and crimp cereal rye, certainly on soybeans. We've proven that over three years to say, hey, that does work. Does it work every single time in an organic scenario? Not always, but most. And uh, uh, a greater percentage of the time, which would make it, uh, I could lean on that as a farmer and, and, and mitigate my risk by, by going down that route. On the, on the corn side, we have discovered things like hairy vetch uh, that has, has been a a good contributor to that, uh, a way to grow nitrogen and a way for us to control, control weeds in a corn scenario. So some, yes. You're around this, uh, field of agriculture all the time. Other things that are exciting to you as we think about 2022 heading into 2023. I mean, 
2022 to 2023, I mean, I look on the organic side and say I'm very bullish on soybeans, and I would look at that again. Last year was a, a $35 to $40 bushel of soybeans on the organic side. I would again see that coming down the road and would be very bullish on that. On corn, I would look corn on the organic side next year to be somewhere between uh, 11 and $12, which is also very good. Um, with both those markets being as strong as they are, uh, I mean, and my rotation where it's at, I, I think I could do well with, with both corn. And now, and I'll look at the wheat side. Uh, I know wheat, many people would look at wheat and say, gosh, it's not something I put in my, my rotation. But on the organic side, as a small grain, we do. And $11 a bushel on wheat looks like a, a, a lucrative opportunity as well for 23. Uh, are a lot of the organic farmers using a rotation? Is that key to doing this? They are. And their uh, their certifier will, will, will require them to at least use a three- way rotation that would be a small grain a soybean or legume and corn and uh, not necessarily all those three they could mix in sunflowers or whatever might work in their program but those three would typically be the leaders certainly here in indiana what would be the best way to to learn more well to learn more certainly uh, go to the uh, nop or the national organic program online and and look at what that program is Come to Bex Hybrids. We can help you with those sort of things. Uh, we have the information necessary. If you're looking for information from other farmers, call in, talk to me. I'll turn you on to another farmer in the business who can help you out directly. I appreciate the time. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's show. I appreciate you listening. Remember, you can hear all of our shows at farmingthecountryside.com, on many local radio stations, or on your favorite podcast platform. And you can follow Farming the Countryside on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, where I'm posting pictures from our own farm and other ideas I think you'll find helpful in the ag industry. I'm Andrew McCray. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com.